as we ready ourselves for Barbie opening tonight. Let's go back to this day in 1995 when another film became something of a cultural touchstone. Uh, and I had this song in it, uh, Kids in America. Uh, this is the Muffs version. Anyway, it was clueless, reviving the teen movie genre and boosting the film career of Alicia Silverstone. Uh, written by Amy Heckling, director of 80s cult classic Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Clueless was a modern take on Jane Austen's novel Emma and was a hit with critics and moviegoers and very influential, inspired lots of catchphrases including as if and whatever. <laughs> That's amazing. Which is why I played it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Clueless. Right. It's funny, isn't it, the movies that uh, in the moment may pass you by, like Clueless, but actually become those Rosetta Stones of pop culture. Maybe Barbie will do that. Or what whatever, you, you know. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Sarah? Oh, well, I'm not, I'm not a Barbie girl. I had Cindy doll because we couldn't afford Barbie when I was growing up. So. I don't even think you're allowed to say that anymore. <laughs> well, you, know, <laughs> you had. I'm just being honest. There was a Cindy doll. Yes, yeah. and she was brunette. She wasn't blonde mm. because you know when you grow up brown with brown hair, and every doll was blue eyed with blonde hair. Yeah. So there you go. Who can recall a Cindy doll? Yeah, there were Cindy dolls. Mm. Yeah. Much coveted. Yeah. Yeah. Two one zero one. Yeah, twenty. Yeah, and, and there's two movies opening tonight. There's Barbie and there's Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer and yes. Which one are you going to first? No. Well, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Simon. Let me just think about that. Um, my um, my my head says Oppenheimer. My heart says Barbie. Put it that way. Yeah, right. Uh, twenty four yeah, to five. You're speaking for a nation there. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. yesterday uh, we were discussing uh, Labor's new law and order. Announcements, including new criminal offence targeting RAM rating, kids as young as 12 and 13, uh, able to be escalated now to the youth court, or uh, uh, this, this is the new idea, and two new youth justice units. And we got a text from someone who was in a youth facility in the early 2000s from uh, when he was 13 to 17 years old. He's now a youth worker and youth advocate, and he is with us now. Kia ora, and thank you for joining us. Uh, Kia ora panel, um, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, how did you end up in a youth justice facility? Well, there's, there's a bit of a story, but um, I'll, I'll make it short. Um, pretty much I grew up um, with a solo mum. It was me, my younger sister and my mum. Mum was on a benefit, um, pretty much just scraping by, um, worked the odd part-time job, did a little bit of work under the table um, just to make ends meet. Now, we were fortunate enough when my grandmother, well, not fortunate that my grandmother passed away, but um, my mother received an inheritance and was able to then buy a house um, in the year 2000. So we moved in there, um, and as mortgages do, rates go up, I'm sure, as many people are experiencing now. But um, she ended up having to pick up a part-time job on top of the benefit to... Um, make ends meet, essentially, put a roof over our head and, and food on the plate for me and my sister. Now, what this meant was that she was working afternoons and evenings. So even at age 10, age 11, I was coming home to an empty house, um, preparing food for my younger sister and I, um, and pretty much have not having that the one parental figure we did have wasn't around because she was trying to um, make ends meet. Now, of course, that meant that I didn't have the 
the structure um, and the, the role modelling that other young people of that age should should be able to have. And so that led me down a path of getting associated with the wrong crowd. At 13, I was using alcohol and cannabis fairly regularly, engaging in um, petty theft, and that got me into the ra- onto the radar of the police and of CIS as it, as it was then. Um, and when they came in and did their investigations, I was... Um, it was found that there were care and protection issues, so I was uplifted um, from my mother at that point. You had a pretty intense time uh, in, um, in in the system. Can you explain that for us briefly, and then we'll go to the panel? Yeah, so I um, went into a couple of foster home environments to start with, um, pretty much continued on the same path I was in. They didn't do a lot to, to change me, so I ended up in a boys' home in Auckland. Um, there now there were 15 boys um, in six rooms across two houses, um, and I was there from, yeah, 13 to 17. Um, I, I can recall that time there was a lot of one-upsmanship in the in the youth home around, you know, who, who had committed the, the worst crime, who had got away with whatever crimes the most times. Um, there was very much a, a one-upsmanship there. Um, and some of the staff were fairly volatile as well. I re- do recall, I think I was about 14 at the time, I spent a year, um, not, not a year, sorry, I spent a month in solitary confinement purely because I lost my temper at one of the staff. Now, what that meant was that I wasn't allowed to interact with any other, any of the other boys that were in the home. I pretty much got carted to the old ed facility and back, um, not, not being able to speak to anyone. I would um, go into a room where there was plywood fixed over the jib in the room um, and a mattress on the floor. I was only allowed out of the room for showers and meals and to, to go back and forth between the, the old ed facility that I was attending. A month and a half in solitary confinement. Uh Unbelievable. Um, look, let's go to our panel. Sarah. Oh, um, <clears throat> kia ora. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to um, your story and I'm feeling the mamai. Um, and I would like to acknowledge how courageous you are in coming on and, and, and sharing what's happened and also how you, I understand, you're, you're serving um, as a youth worker to try to change this quite frankly, barbaric system. Um, so I, yeah, kāroha nui. What, I, what I'd like to ask you is if you had a meeting with Chapi Tukane, the CE of Oranga Tamariki, what would you say about your experience and what needs I, changing? I would ask him why my voice didn't matter. I would ask him why I had these social workers and these staff in these facilities, excuse me, and why my voice was not heard in any of that, why no one came up and asked me what I aspired to be, what mattered to me. Simon. Um, I I want to say something about this that um, I imagine will be unpopular with some listeners, and I'm sorry for that, but, you know, almost 40 years ago in this country, we 
established a, an economic regime that led to high unemployment, that closed down whole towns, you know, closed down the work opportunities of people in larger cities, you know, in all sorts of areas, led to family breakdown, led to the institutionalisation of a whole lot of kids you know, in state care, and we been hearing from the commission, the Royal Commission now, and mm. what, hap- what happened to those kids. Um, and the inheritors of the political tradition that established that in this country are now telling us they need, we need tougher sentences, we need to lock people up and basically throw away the key, and it's a situation that has been caused not entirely but in very large part by their own economic policies. Uh, and we are intergeneration, intergenerationally mired in that now. And it's going to take a long time to get out of it. Um, and that's not to say that nothing should be done with kids who ram raid. It's to say that everything should be done with them, uh, including finding ways to love them and care for them and help them. I agree. And prevention's better than the cure. So it is about reconnection and it is about front-loading and supporting struggling families. So what, what I'd like to know is, in terms of where you are now, mm. who was the, what happened? Um, first of all, I'd like to say that I've, I've achieved what I've achieved in spite of my upbringing, not because... Of, of any intervention that any government department provided. Mm. Yeah. Um, but what it's, what it's given me, um, and I think what, what's, you know, there's, there's a saying in entrepreneurship that you, you use what you have. And I had a lot of pain and anger. Mm. Um, now, um, after I got out of here at 17, um, I continued to use substances right up until my mid-20s. Um, and I just happened to move into a flat with a bunch of people that went to university. And they say that you're the average of the people you associate with. And that lifted my average just a little high enough for me to aspire for more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to turn that anger around and, and say that I, I refuse to, to let another person experience the, the hopelessness and helplessness and feeling of not being wanted that I experienced and it's I've made a career out of um, determining that I will never let another young person that I engage with feel the way that I did Brilliant well, uh, to echo many people um, uh, Jay in Otodahi says I'm sitting in my car with tears mm-hmm. listening to this brave and courageous man talking about his experience in care please thank him for sharing and wish him well. He is so uh, inspirational. Mm. Um, there's so many questions we still want to ask you. We've got a couple more minutes. I guess I want to go back and ask you, while we do have the time, um, what ongoing impact did isolation in care have you? And recall, this is not even that long ago. This is in the 2000s, 2004, 2005. What impact ongoing did uh, a month and a half uh, isolation have on you? Um, well, first of all, I became very comfortable with my own company. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess, I guess, second to that, it, I, I didn't. I guess I didn't know that that at, at that point that that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, and I, I think 
that, that isolation, that period in isolation, plus some of the other experiences, because that wasn't the only bout of, of time I spent in isolation. That was the longest, but it wasn't the only bout of time I spent in there. Is that that that, that it gave me the ability to to endure? Um, I, I think that that whole experience, not just the isolation, but being in that home for for four years. The the one thought that kept me going was that I'm. Once, once I'm 17, I'm, I'm going to be at the other side of this. And it, it gave me the ability um, to endure, which has served me well. Um, and I know this isn't directly answering your question, but it has given me the ability now to walk alongside the youth that I work with for however long it takes. Another one here. I'm bawling my eyes out listening to this mm-hmm. amazing man's story. His mother did the best she could with what she had, and he suffered the consequences of having his only parent unavailable. Life's tough for some, when you get squeezed with enough pressure, you can become a diamond. Uh, I want to ask you also, you have been in these facilities. Uh, you now support uh, youth in a similar situation uh, you were, so you know uh, what happens in these situations. Do you think it's gotten better or worse since 2005 when you were in there? Um, I, I don't think they've gotten any better Um to be honest, and I think the, the approach that we're taking of putting our putting our worst our worst youth offenders in, into these facilities um, has, has made them has made them environments that are unsafe, are, are more unsafe for youth now than what they were when I went in there because because of the one-upsmanship and because of the um, because of the, the jostling for social hierarchy that that happens in those places at such a pivotal age for identity development for young people. I, I think they are worse environments now for young people than they were when I was in there. Another one here. I have stopped doing what I was doing to sit and listen to this story and cry. Incredible person. I will be sharing this interview with everyone. Final thoughts around the panel. Uh, I just want to say thank you for sharing. Uh, uh, I don't know what else to say. I'm yeah. Yeah, and also um, you are so inspirational to rangatahi that are unfortunately in the in the uh, institutions at the moment, and keep going because um, you will change the system by how you lead your life. Yeah. Hey, thanks for um, joining us on the panel. Kia ora. Appreciate your time. Thank you. That is a gentleman. Uh, we got a text yesterday who uh, share, wanted to share his experiences in a youth facility in the early 2000s from when he was 13 to 17. Uh, and he changed his life around. He's now a youth worker, a health advocate, uh, and he works with uh, youth on the rails. So... What a story, eh? Yeah, and, yeah. and um, you know, there's lots of... It's election year and there's lots of political talk about Kiwi battlers and people doing it hard and all the rest. And lots of people are doing it hard, of course. Um, but we tend to forget people like him who do it really hard, you know. it's. I mean, one of the battles I have at the moment uh, with some of the stuff I've been writing is 
very wealthy business people shouldn't have to pay more tax because uh, they've worked really hard and taken enormous risks. I don't know that anybody takes more risks and has worked harder and been up against it more uh, than someone like that young man. Another one here. Um, I'm very moved sending love, and he sounds Mm. like a diamond. Mm. I'll be sharing it uh, as well. Um, By the way, there is a uh, Prime Minister's media stand-up at 5pm on Checkpoint, or 5pm-ish. So do stay tuned on RNZ National for that. We have Simon Wilson this afternoon, and we have Sarah Sparks as well. And can I just say, and on a completely different tone, um, I, I have to say it, we've just had a huge response about the number of people that had Cindy Dole. So I've just got to raise <laughs> there you that go. because they've just been coming through right through. Next week uh, someone will tell you about cabbage patches. Yeah, right? well, I, I, I can recall those. <laughs> That's an old uh, memory. And, uh, as, well, as well as the pet rock. But no, the... <laughs> Yeah, yeah the movie not coming in. Well, no. <laughs> uh, but there you go. So the Cindy doll really sparks it in there. So thank you very much, Sarah. Um, but finally to this, uh, do you bog buy? Uh, and I, no, I'm not just talking about toilet paper. Many of us buy items in bulk when they are at a cheaper price. It's called spaving or spending money in an attempt to save it. But does it actually save us money in the long run? Sorted's Tom Hartman says we need to take extra care when it comes to buying in bulk, and he's with us now, Tom Hartman, personal finance leader at Sorted. Tom, kia ora. Kia ora. Great to be with you. Uh, it's a pleasure, and this is something that I've long wondered and talked to my wife about this. Do you think we should buy, you know, five packets of instant coffee or just one? Or what type of product should we buy if we are going to buy bulk? But let me ask you, um, buying in bulk, saving money, what's the problem? Well, it's a common tip. I, I actually, you know, buy more when something something's on special, but it doesn't always work out the way we want. And it really depends. You really need to know, uh, like to say, the difference between butter and ice cream. Okay, so some things, if you buy more of, um, you're not going to use them. Um, you're going to consume them at the same pace, right? You buy more butter, you're not going to eat more butter. If you buy more ice cream, you're going to end up eating more ice cream. And so it's so insightful. And beer, it's like the difference between. Um, so you really need to think about what you're buying in bulk. Yeah. Actually, I can understand that. Good insights there, Simon Wilson. Uh, I, I think that's true. But I also think something else happens. Um, I, I know from my own household when any of us buy in bulk, um, the risk goes up that um, some of the stuff will never be used. Um, and mm. therefore, it's a false economy. Um, I always like to think the way to approach a supermarket is buy the things you need and don't get seduced by any of, oh, if I bought three times as much of that because it's on special, that would be great because it might just sit there. Yeah, and then in the end you have to throw but, it out. But, but does it not make sense, Tom, and you're from Sorted, that you get the cheaper price uh, if you buy in bulk? Uh, it, it does make sense, but spaving is a mathematical impossibility, because, especially for those things. Like, it's not the same as a bargain, right? It, it's actually when they've got you spending money because and because you're thinking you're saving. Um, uh, for example, two-for-one d- deals with T-shirts or some, something like that. You end up buying a T-shirt you don't want, and you feel like you're saving money. Sarah? Yeah, it's the psychology of it. But mind you, in saying that, I do bulk buy flour. Why? Because I bake Mm. for everyone. But I bulk buy flour and butter (laughs) and sugar. 
Okay. But you use them. So you, yeah. you, you know that they're them. going to be used. So, yeah. So yeah, that, but that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. then the rest of it, yeah. I actually go, I, I uh, keep it fresh. I buy things in season. Like I go to the market and buy oh, fresh. right. Yeah. Okay, it, so a mix. Yeah, I'm a hybrid yeah. girl. Yeah, and mm. I've taught my kids who are now, um, one of them is down in Otago flatting, you know, yeah, about can- that. Kane and Rolleston says bulk buying doesn't always pay off. Sometimes it encourages you to consume more of it. For example, if you buy a dozen beer, it might last you a week. But if you buy two dozen beer, it'll, it'll last still last you a week. Yeah, beer's like ice cream. Like that, isn't it? <laughs> well, you've got to have a strategy. Well, yeah. But what, what are the items then that might be better to stock up on when they're cheap on the shelves, Tom? Well, uh, coffee and tea are a pretty good example. You're probably not mm-hmm. going to end up, um, you know, doubling your intake of coffee and tea just because you buy uh, a little bit more. So I think those are those are safe things. But if you're looking at snacks, um, mm-hmm. I, I know I've got a house full of teenagers. Those things will disappear overnight. It's tempting to say household cleaners or you know body wash and shampoo and things like that, right. which you can buy in bulk. Yeah. yeah. As long as you don't keep buying so much that you you just end up with a Cup yeah, full of them and yes. never use them. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Are there any other tips you can give us, uh, Tom? Maybe for uh, a larger families or indeed people uh, living alone. We're all about Marie condoing your your finances, <laughs> and in this case, we want to keep spending as as happy as possible because we all all get an emotional return from it. So if you're cutting things in order to not feel deprived. Cut the things that really don't leave you that happy when you're buying them. Oh, that's good advice. <laughs> really uh, great advice. Someone mm. says, uh, OMG, Wallace, you drink instant coffee. That's all you got out of it. Every now and then a, well, a well-placed instant coffee. Tom is not too bad, right? Yeah, no silence yeah. there. Very good. Uh, Tom, thank you very much for being with us. Tom Harpin, Personal Finance Lead at Assorted. Thank you. Uh, great to be yeah, keep going. Are you there? No. Um, let's go back to some of the uh, feedback uh, regarding um, uh, GP visits. Yeah, I'm 71, pay $65. Uh, that's with age 65 plus discount. Others, adults pay 88. The system stinks. I'm in a high decile area, but not high income. Others richer than me pay way less, as in a different area. Uh, sounds like a bit of a postcode thing here, sirens going on. Oh, there, there will be. Um if you're in a high decile area, yes, um, the chances are everything costs more. Um, my son will not go to the doctor as $56 and only allow maximum 10 minutes. And one issue, only gone are the days of your local GP who cares about you as a person. Bottom line, we talked about that a little oh, bit off My there, GP didn't we? cares about me as a person, and I think her colleagues do in her practice, and I bet that's not uncommon. I bet lots of doctors care about their patients as people. Do you reckon, Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, not that I go to my GP often, but it's it's to do with Papa for me. I've known her for decades, and she knows my babies, and that's what yes, matters. Yeah. Uh, and uh, look, finally on this one here, uh, I got a Cindy doll for Christmas in 1977, <gasps> simply because she and I had brown hair. Uh, also, my mum said at least she wasn't uh, a such and such like Barbie. I won't say it doesn't really matter. Um, but needless to say, uh, there are big fans of the Cindy dolls. I did not even know. And it was because... They look like this person as well, Sarah. That's right. You know, when you recognise yourself, you, you identify. Yeah. And I never recognised myself as a blonde. I'm looking forward to the Oppenheimer dolls. Yeah. 
or bring back the pet rocks, maybe. <laughs> that could be something to... An idea born from the panel. Anyway, Simon Wilson, Sarah Sparks, uh, stay with us for the Prime Minister's stand-up. That's just in a minute or so. Thank you very much. I'm back tomorrow, Power Battle Friday. Uh, Chris Finlayson and Moata Tamaira. See you tomorrow.